Okay, Biden won. Now we have to do something about the Electoral College. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The four-year nightmare is at last over. It started in 2016 when the Democrat won the popular vote by about three million, but lost in the Electoral College. With tremendous luck, President Biden won both the popular vote by a margin of some nine million and also won 306 votes in the Electoral College, far more than the 270 required to be declared the winner and the next president. After Hillary Clinton's popular vote victory, but defeat in the Electoral College, which placed Donald Trump in the White House, a rumble against the Electoral College system itself started to gain volume across America. But isn't there a good reason why we have that system? Wouldn't a strictly popular vote system mean that millions of liberals in New York and California would overwhelm and render all other votes meaningless? Why is there this electoral setup? Is it intended to promote or detract from the popular will, determining wins and losses in elections? Clearly, popular will does make a difference. For example, the big money sponsors of extremist Trumpist Republicans are feeling the heat of public pressure and are pulling back their funding. Our voices do matter. One possibility of changing the electoral college is also bubbling up from the frustrations of the citizens of America themselves. The idea we're going to discuss today is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which our guest today, David Edward Burke, argues is, quote, the best way to defang the outdated system, end of quote. As Burke describes the problem, due to the bizarre way we choose our president, a few thousand votes in key swing states matter more than millions nationwide. Clearly, the system is broken, and it certainly needs fixing. So what is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact? Is it something clear and effective enough for us to get behind? Would it really take care of the problem? David Edward Burke is founder of Citizens Take Action, a nonprofit that's focused on political reform and increasing civic engagement. He's a leading advocate for constitutional amendment to get big money out of politics, as well as a vocal supporter of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Prior to uh, founding Citizens Take Action, David worked as a congressional staffer and campaign coordinator. David's writing about political reform has appeared in the Huffington Post, Washington Monthly, and his work has been recognized by numerous outlets, including Salon, L.A. Times, and the Washington Post. Well, David Burke, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It is a heavy lift. It is my pleasure, and it's important work. Well, addressing this rickety, broken old system is just so important, and it gives us so much to talk about. Let's start by defining the problem. What is the Electoral College? When did it come into being? For what purposes was it created? And what problem did it intend to address? Well, the Electoral College has has been around since uh, since the founding of our country. Um, 
But it should be noted that it was it was a hasty compromise that the framers made as they were sort of rushing to complete things and uh, you know move our founding documents toward their conclusion um, during the constitutional convention and the accompanying debates. Um, there was a lot of discussion about different ways to choose the president. Some uh, some founders advocated for a popular vote. Others thought that the legislature should choose. Uh, I believe there was even a time when they were discussing the possibility of having three chief executives. And it was difficult for them to come to an agreement. And the Electoral College is the best they could, they could do or agree upon under limited time circumstances. And of course, under that system, uh, states um, choose electors and each state has electoral votes and the candidate who wins the most electoral votes wins the presidency. Uh, states have discretion in how they can choose their electors. Most today award all of their electors to whichever candidate wins the popular vote within their state. But there are some accession, uh, exceptions like Maine and Nebraska, right. in which the electoral votes are awarded on a district basis as well as statewide. Yeah, so many questions. I've, I've wondered if awarding them based on congressional district might help or, uh, I don't know, just so many different aspects of it. And what what was the problem that the Electoral College was trying to address? Was there a, and I know on the part of people like Washington and Hamilton, there was a lot of concern about too much democracy. They were afraid of too much democracy. Was that was this sort of a check on too much participatory democracy? Well, I think there were certainly some people who were afraid, um, perhaps of you know a pure majority rule, as you call it. But I think there were also practical concerns. Just you have to remember that was a very different time, and um, information didn't travel as quickly as right. far. I and mean, it wasn't as easy for voters to obtain. And so I think there were some doubts about the extent to which uh, voters would be sufficiently informed. Uh -huh. um, another another issue, I think, was that um, the founders were concerned that uh, candidates would really be successful based on their states, as in voters would really just gravitate towards whichever candidate was from their state. Right. And so the Electoral College wasn't necessarily a way to... A, to check the popular will, it was to balance these competing interests of you want, you know, the people to have an opportunity to be heard. But to an extent, um, states also have different interests. And I think more so back then had different interests on mm -hmm. certain issues. Mm -hmm. So it was an attempt to strike a balance. But I wouldn't say it was a p out of pure fear of, of majority rule as much as it was, you know, a kind of compromise. And I am old enough to remember when it was fairly commonplace to have favorite son candidates that could be, you know, they'd hold, they'd be like the uh, depository for the electoral votes for one particular state, and they could be traded or, you know, bid on whatever at the uh, nominating convention. I haven't seen that in quite a while. I don't know if that even still exists, the uh, favorite son idea. But it was a way to give the, the, the states uh, particular power. And I believe... Obviously, Hillary Clinton, you know, won the popular vote by about three million votes and lost the Electoral College. My understanding is there have been five other candidates who, in fact, won the popular vote but did not become president. 
Are you familiar with those? Can you tell us about those instances and what happened to them? Um, well, I'd have to I'd have to dig in a little bit to remember some of the later ones. Of course, perhaps the most well-known incident in our lifetimes wasn't even Hillary Clinton. It was the, the 2000 election oh, yes. in which Al Gore won the popular vote and uh, ended up losing the Electoral College through you know, a litigated litigated outcome in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I believe that at one point the outcome was something like only 537 or something like that. Or yeah. Five, yeah. Something like that. Less than a thousand votes in one state, Yeah, um, you know, led to the outcome. And one thing that's interesting is the contrast is, you know, Gore could not have been more, um, more accepting yeah. of the outcome. And he <laughs> even, he even stifled the debate of the election results when they were being certified, um, even though some of the members of Congress were trying to argue in his favor. So it was a much more easy, peaceful transfer of power, um, even in the 2000 election. Well, it was graceful. He had class. (laughs) And Trump wanted to uh, push, I don't know how much he really understood, well, anything, the Electoral College, but he, he wanted to push the vice president to somehow at the last minute disqualify the electors. But by law, it's pretty clear he was not simply not able to do that, correct? Correct. And it's interesting because Pence was playing that same role that, that Gore sort of played. Uh-huh. Um, although Gore, what, Gore was the, you know, the vice president for Bill Clinton, and he was presiding over his own election, and Pence was presiding over... Um, you know, his election with Trump as the vice president. So they were sort of in the same position. And thankfully, Pence also did the right thing. Yeah, well, in spite of all the pressure. So there's now a plan which grabbed my attention, gaining momentum, which, frankly, I had not heard of until reading your article, called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's a mouthful. I have a bunch of questions, of course. What is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact? How did it come to be, and how does it work? Go to it. Well, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is a plan to ensure that whichever candidate wins the popular vote always wins the presidency. And the way it works is that it's an agreement among states uh, in which each state that joins the compact agrees to award all of their electoral votes to the candidate that wins the national popular vote, regardless of which candidate may win the most votes in that state. So, for example, even though Donald Trump won Wyoming in 2020 uh, because he won the most votes in the state, if Wyoming were part of the compact, they would have awarded all of their electoral votes to Joe Biden because Biden, as we know, won the vote nationwide. Um, So the compact even though states have already joined, it doesn't go into effect until states totaling a majority of electoral votes or 270 mm-hmm. um, agree to the compact. But when that does happen, it will go into effect and should ensure that we never have that outcome where one candidate wins the popular vote while another wins the electoral college. Well, I can imagine some states and a lot of people really wouldn't like that idea. For example, I mean, Wyoming, pretty red state. Vermont, pretty uh, democratic state. Doesn't it uh, disenfranchise those voters? I mean, why bother? 
Well, that's an interesting interesting choice of words. I mean, on the one hand, I think you can argue that the current system, the Electoral College, effectively disenfranchises uh-huh. most of the voters in the country because if you aren't in a swing state, you aren't getting much attention from right. presidential candidates. Your vote doesn't matter as much. So, you know, a voter in Vermont, Wyoming, California, Texas, their vote doesn't matter as much as someone's in Florida or Pennsylvania or Michigan. But I would argue that, you know, a popular vote doesn't disenfranchise voters any more than it does when we use the popular vote to elect our governors or senators or members of Congress or local officials. You know, it's really just a way to ensure that every person's vote counts equally instead of the current system in which um, some some people in different in swing states are much more likely to influence the election. Their vote ca- carries more weight. Well, again, with Wyoming, what what would you say to to voters in Wyoming so that their their state vote, the fact that Trump won that state, wouldn't matter at all? I mean, how would the people in in Wyoming feel, for example? Well, I think you know I would appeal to their fundamental fairness, right? You know, in Wyoming, um, perhaps, or in a swing state, as even maybe a better example, uh-huh. um, they have a lot of influence. Yes, but. If they ever chose to leave that state and move to a safe state, they wouldn't have so much influence. And I'd ask them to consider whether they think that's fair. Um, but in addition, you know, under the current system, with the winner-take-all awarding of electoral votes in most states, you know, any voter who is in the minority party in that state, their votes are effectively wiped off the books. So Wyoming has mm-hmm. Democrats, and California has. I believe over 6 million Trump voters, um, but those votes didn't matter in the outcome because the electoral votes are awarded just based on whichever candidate wins the most votes. So, you know, I would also say to Wyoming or other other smaller state residents, there's this idea that the Electoral College really protects small states. Right. But in truth, um, you know, candidates spend about 90% of their time in just a dozen swing states that tend yes. to be bigger, yes. like Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania. But and there have been states back in 2016 that were the people there were pretty angry that they were called flyover states because they didn't have a lot of electoral votes. And frankly, Hillary Clinton just uh, ignored them because she knew she had votes. You know, the electoral votes were would be decided elsewhere. And it was about getting to 270. Boy, it's an interesting fix. And the uh, the framers of our Constitution, I think, were brilliant, and you know, it's two hundred and what forty years old. Uh, maybe it needs some changes. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Well, we're talking about an issue of democracy, the electoral college, and something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So, the electoral college is in the Constitution. Amending the Constitution is, as you say the most direct path toward uh, this change becoming law. But that's, that strategy is a gargantuan struggle, often exceedingly frustrating. Uh, there, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, which came close but failed. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that process of amending the Constitution and perhaps some other way it might become law. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, the Constitution was a wonderful document, but anything that's a 
270 years old, 250 years old, needs needs updates from time to time. Um, in terms of amending the Constitution to you know uh, change the Electoral College or really any amendment, the process there are two ways to do it. One is through um, you Congress passes legislation by uh, two thirds of Congress, and then it's sent to ratification by three quarters of the states. So 38 states would have to ratify. Right. Um, the other method, which has never been used before, is through what's known as an Article Five constitutional convention in which the states can call a constitutional convention mm. um, to address issues or propose amendments. And then those, uh, whatever comes out of the convention would be sent to the states for ratification where it would then again need 38 states supporting that. Um, however, as you said, that's you know a difficult process, yeah. although historically we have successfully used amendments many times, especially to overturn unpopular Supreme Court decisions. Um, but on an issue like the Electoral College, that's very partisan, and um, you see a lot of division in terms of poll numbers, you know, especially recently given the outcomes, more Democrats support um, fixing the Electoral College and replacing it with a popular vote, whereas Republicans increasingly want to keep the Electoral College because they feel it, it rewards them. Um, and so an amendment on this issue would be particularly difficult, which is why a solution like the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact that does not require amending the Constitution stands a better chance of success. Okay, how would it become law? The well, the states, we need the states totaling 270 electoral votes right. to agree to the compact. The good news is we're farther and closer to success than most, than most people think. Um, so far, 16 states and jurisdictions have agreed to the compact, totaling 196 electoral votes, huh. which means we're more than 70% of the way to success. And I'd say another piece of good news is that um, even among states that haven't agreed to the compact yet, many of them have had at least one legislative chamber pass the compact, in, indicating that there is some support among the legislators in that state. So it may have passed the House, but not the Senate, mm -hmm. or may have passed both, but not been signed by the governor. And I think to the surprise of many, some of those states are, you know, traditionally considered red states or, you know, swing states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, North Carolina, Michigan. My goodness, really? um, so the, there are some prospects on the horizon for, you know, getting from that 196 electoral votes to 270. Uh, and it's not inconceivable that by 2024, the compact could cross that threshold. Wow, that would be some fast work. I'm frankly amazed and a bit embarrassed that I had not heard of it before uh, you're writing about it. Uh, so it goes through legislatures. And boy, they can be uh, interesting processes. That, frankly, takes a lot of money to do something like that. Whoa, who's, who's, uh, where's the money coming from for, for pushing this nationwide uh, move? Well, there are a number of organizations that support this cause. Um, one of the leading ones um, is National Popular Vote, which you can visit at nationalpopularvote.com. Uh -huh. You know, we're also supportive. We're citizens take action. Um, but to be perfectly honest, I'm not an expert on uh -huh. the funding 
of the of all the different organizations. I know that we get most of our donations from you know individual uh-huh. contributors and uh-huh. grassroots donors, um, but I'm not positive to the extent sure. to which um, where some of the money behind the compact comes sure. from. But I can say that I do know there are a lot of volunteers making the grassroots effort to put pressure on their legislators. We get volunteer signups for this all the time. And that matters. It really, really matters. Uh, you know, we do have a lot more power than they want us to recognize. So who might be on the other side? I mean, they must. I may, is there some bipartisan support? And what interests would we expect to most uh, strengthen, strongly oppose it? Well, there, there definitely is some bipartisan support. Um, a number of Republicans, and I'll see if I can look this up, but I, I've spoken to some you know, former members of the Bush administration, for example, who have come out and expressed their support for the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact because they feel like even if the system may have worked in their favor right. in 2000, it's, it's fundamentally unfair. Um, so there is bipartisan support for it. In terms of who opposes it, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of belief among um, some Republicans that the Electoral College is their best chance of sort of hanging on mm-hmm. to the executive branch. And so they're afraid to lose that advantage. So there are, you know, Republicans who hold that belief are the most likely to oppose the national popular vote. However, you know, I've talked to some Democrats in in smaller states like um, West Virginia, for example, who have also had concerns that, well, their state might not get as much attention if there were mm-hmm. a national popular vote. Um, although I'd argue that, you know, they might get even more attention than they do. But yes, I think mm-hmm. some Republicans who, who think this system works in their favor are the biggest uh, opponents of reform. Yeah, interesting. As I think about it, the really important states, the swing states, important meaning electorally, tend to get more uh, gifts from the government, <laughs> you know, grants and things like that. And so if it were more spread out, places that aren't getting, you know, their share of the money because they're not so important electorally, they might actually make out better. And in the past election, as with many others in general, voters in the less densely populated states went for Trump. and the more urban areas, Biden carried the day. I've heard concerns that if the EC Electoral College is done away with and we rely solely on the popular vote, liberal places like New York and California would render voters in those smaller rural states meaningless. Their voice will count even less. As a liberal, as I am, I suppose I might like it to have New York and California dictate, but as an American, it would be terribly unfair. What's your response to that concern? I'm sure you've heard it before. Yes, as a Californian, I've heard that, uh, you know, the voters in my state will drown out uh, voters across the country. But I think there are some interesting points, you know, that, that cut against that. One, and this is really interesting, is, you know, the 100 biggest cities in America which I think people consider sort of the, the liberal or the blue strongholds, they constitute just 19% of the population, oh, yeah. which is roughly the same as the combined population of what you might define as rural America. Um, you know, most Americans, they don't live in, you know, a densely populated huge city or a very sparsely populated small town. They live in, you know, a suburb, whether it's 
maybe California, Wisconsin, Vermont, wherever. Um, so the idea that these big cities just outweigh everyone else simply isn't true. Um, you also look at, you've got to keep in mind, you know, people may think of California or New York as these blue monoliths, but again, there were 6 million Trump voters in California just this last cycle, and they're effectively disenfranchised from the presidential election under the current system. Um, a national popular vote would make their vote matter a lot more mm-hmm. because it would be truly counted toward the total instead of just not counted at all towards California's electoral votes this way. Interesting. That, that's got to be uh, put out there for sure. You, you say that the Electoral College magnifies the power of politically divided states. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. The What the Electoral College does is it effectively gives your state more influence depending on how closely politically divided it is. So if your state is about, you know, a 50-50 state in terms of Democrat-Republican votes, your state's going to get the most attention from presidential candidates. It's going to get maybe extra grant money or disaster relief because it's, you know, politically divided. Those electoral votes are really where you win or lose the election. In a what you call a safer state, where it might be more of a 65, 35, or 60, 40 discrepancy, you know, those states don't have nearly as much influence. And I think what's particularly unfair about that is that it's arbitrary, right? Mm. You know, it, it can change over time. What's a swing state, you know, today might not be in 15 years. Oh, for sure. um, some, some states can sort of stay safe states for a very long time or stay swing states. It seems like Florida and Florida has been a swing state for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's just fundamentally arbitrary which states are kind of going to have the most attention from presidential candidates. And it's all based on how close the state's political makeup is. And and the, the Electoral College is based on population in the area. So, for example, Vermont has uh, two senators, like all states do, but only one member of Congress because the population is only about 600,000, I think. So they, they, it would still, mm-hmm. uh, under this proposal, that wouldn't change. The number of representatives would still be allotted based on a certain uh, uh, percentage of the, of the population. Like, you know, New Hampshire has, has two uh, members of Congress because we're 1.2 million. So uh, that that doesn't get affected either way, correct? No, yeah, that shouldn't be a concern. The national popular vote interstate compact would just affect the presidential right. race. It wouldn't affect the way we elect our members of Congress or senators, sure. which, you know, it's worth noting, is already through popular vote. True, and it didn't used to be. The senators, uh, as I'm sure you know, used to be appointed by the legislature to be like a uh, a little barrier between the upper house and the hoi polloi. But uh, so <laughs> senators are elected by popular vote, I think, since 1912, something like that, fairly recently. And it, it does seem like there are always just about six states, I don't know exactly, that are the super swing states that decide the election with their electoral votes. And we remember Hillary Clinton literally flew over those others, pretty much telling them, I don't care about you. And they elected Trump because they weren't paid attention to. So would this plan address that and perhaps rectify that? 
I think so. And it's interesting because you hear a fear that people mention is that with a popular vote, you know, candidates would only focus their attention on like big cities on the coast, for example. And I think in reality, if you look, like you said, even in 2016, 2020, many states are getting flown over by candidates now. I think that a popular vote could encourage a more national campaign. Um, You know, even if it may not be the the best use of time to visit a small hamlet in a certain state. I think candidates with a national popular vote would want to show, you know, every type of American and every type of community that they matter. And I think it logistically might just even make more sense to not fly over states. Why not stop for a couple hours and get to know some voters um, instead of kind of just crisscrossing between swing states the way candidates do now? And assuming they have TV crews uh, traveling with them, you know, if you project saying hello to a small town in this state, it uh, resonates perhaps in other states. You know, it gets the message out there. So the question you raise, and which I'll ask you as well, under the uh, National uh, Popular Vote Interstate Compact, Would Vermont really award all its electors to a Republican candidate, even if two-thirds of its residents supported the Democrat? Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of a when push comes to shove question. And I think people are concerned. Let's say, you know, states do join the compact and we get to 270 electoral votes. When the time comes, would Vermont really give its votes to a Republican candidate? Um, And there are reasons to believe they would, including you know, a recent Supreme Court decision, um, Chafalo versus Washington, that sort of held that states have authority over their electors and they can require their electors to vote as promised. So um, as promised when they were chosen. Sure. So there would be legal consequences for electors who did not do as they promised to do when they were chosen. And that's a good reason to believe a state like Vermont or, you know, a left-leaning state would still award its votes to a Republican candidate or a right-leaning state might award its votes to a Democratic candidate because it's the law and they would suffer consequences if they didn't. Mm. Good to know. Apparently this thing has been thought through quite a bit. (laughs) And I, I think of my sister who lives in Massachusetts. She feels like her vote doesn't really count. The candidates for president know Massachusetts is a solid Democrat, and that's just the way it is. Uh, What about Republicans in Massachusetts? There's quite a few. We've had some Republican governors down in Massachusetts, much to the surprise of everybody who thinks of, you know, Massachusetts as the one state that voted from our governor. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's so it's an interesting point. because studies have shown that voter turnout does differ between swing states and safe states, uh-huh. generally speaking. There's, I think it's a 5 to 7% difference in turnout um, with voters in the swing states turning out more. And I think that speaks to the effect or speaks to the belief that, you know, if you're in a safe state, your vote doesn't matter right. as much. Right. Um, and so I think that with a national popular vote, it would give everyone an equal incentive to show up across the country. Um, And I think that's particularly important because, you know, we're not just talking about the presidency here. If if you're not showing up to vote, then you're not voting down ballot for Congress or local races. 
more ballot initiatives. Um, so you want to give every American, you know, the strongest incentive possible to to go to the ballot box. Um, but as you said, you know, there are people in safe states, whether it's the majority party or the minority party, who feel like their vote just isn't that important. Boy, and as a former candidate myself, successful, uh, it's getting people out to vote, especially in primaries, is exceedingly difficult. People feel like, oh, well, I'll vote for president, but that's what, you know, I've done it. But perhaps this could have the side effect of of, uh, increasing voter turnout uh, up and down the ticket as well, which I've always thought more democracy is a good thing. So... In your article, you mentioned Colorado. Which state legislators, legislatures thus far have supported the plan, and why was Colorado so important uh, to uh, its momentum? Yeah, so a number of, as I said, 15 states and then um, Washington, D.C. have already signed on. Um, it includes you know, Washington, Oregon, California, Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island, um, but Col- and a handful of others. But Colorado is particularly interesting because you know, Colorado's legislature signed on to the compact, but then um, it was there was a pushback, and it was taken directly to the ballot. So voters mm. in Colorado, uh, through Prop 113, got to vote whether they wanted to stay in the compact or not. So essentially it really put the question to voters, do you think that, you know, do you want the candidate who wins your state to get your votes? Or is it more important to you that it be the candidate who won nationwide? Um, And Colorado voters supported staying in the compact, meaning that they preferred that their vote go to the candidate who won the national popular vote, even if that differed from the total vote in Colorado. So that was an important important victory for the compact, but also a statement from those Colorado voters. Hmm. Boy, I was just wondering how, you know, frustrating it was uh, this year waiting, what, like four days to find out who won. I, I wonder if this national popular vote might make it quicker to find out who actually won. I mean, that's just, that's a minor point. We can stand to wait a few days. Uh, you know, I mean, not everything has an instant solution. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, David Edward Burke, who is uh, arguing on behalf of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, fixing a problem, fixing a mess that is broke, as we used to say, the Electoral College. And as you write, again, this 270 electoral votes are needed to make this thing law. You write that Getting those last 74 votes will be a substantial challenge because Republican candidates have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Some outspoken Republicans have made deeply flawed arguments defending the Electoral College. And what are those arguments? And do they care about facts this time, do you think? Well, I think some of them do, but sometimes they play fast and loose with those facts. Um, for example, you know, there's the idea that that the Electoral College really forces candidates to focus on small states and pay attention to small states. And if you look at where candidates spent their time in 2016 or 2020, that just isn't true. You know, 90% of their events are in swing states and usually they're larger swing states. Um, but I think another interesting argument that comes up a lot is that 
the popular vote would you know effectively silence certain types of voters like it would silence rural voters for example if you know urban voters could drown them out or it would silence voters in a small state and and frankly i think nothing could be further from the truth it's it's the current system that effectively silences voters and in one article i wrote i used the example of iowa in which um in 2016 trump won by you know the thinnest of margins but even though you know over 40% of the state's voters supported Hillary Clinton, that wasn't reflected in the state's electoral vote total at all. You know, Trump won 100% of the electoral votes, even though he won closer right. to 50% of the votes in the state. Um, and then so using that winner-take-all system, you know, effectively tosses out the votes of the candidate in the minority. Um, so those are, you know, and as we mentioned, I think the third common argument that you hear is that voters in California and New York or right. big cities will control the outcome of the election. And again, that doesn't square with the facts. You know, first of all, New York isn't even the second biggest state in the country. So it's not like as if California and New York can gang up together when there's Florida and Texas and other large states that have voted Republican in recent elections. Um, but more importantly, there are millions of Republican voters in California and New York, yeah. and their voices are as valuable, you know, should be should count the same as Republican and Democratic voices in every other state in the country. So this is really about you know leveling the playing field, and it's about magnifying every voice instead of choosing some over others. Of course, there are interstate or intra-party issues. Like I remember in 2016 here in New Hampshire, and this is a party issue, and I'm sure it happens everywhere else, and I'd love to see it addressed. Bernie Sanders won with a margin of 22% over Hillary Clinton. But most of the delegates at the national convention were awarded to Hillary Clinton which didn't please a lot of us people. That's kind of a separate issue, I know. But, you know, delegates are not electors. But, boy, perhaps doing something like that, you know, having sh shouldn't our electors uh, represent us, our electors, and our delegates to the state convention? I know that's a separate issue slightly, but it's frustrating as all heck. You know, and you want it to be... Yeah, uh, well, I think it's... a. I think it's a related issue, right? And I think the Democratic Party has made some changes to the primary yes. system since then. But but even so, you know, it's difficult, I think, for anybody to say to, you know, take the time, participate in the campaign and the democratic process, see their candidate win the most votes, but then not win a different kind of vote. It just, you know, it doesn't square with our idea of what's fair. And I really I, 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 maybe I'm naive and Pollyanna-ish, but I think Americans do care about fairness. I really do, down beneath it all. Uh, we've been freed from something really ugly on top of it for a long time. But anyway, right-wing politicians like Dan Crenshaw of Texas argued he's in favor of keeping the Electoral College. He says, we live in a republic, which means 51% of the population doesn't get to boss around the other 49%. He and other proponents of the Electoral College also say the Electoral College pre prevents what he calls a tyranny of the majority, in which the candidate who wins the most votes imposes their will on the minority. Uh, we've spoken about that 
a bit, but it's it's keeps coming back to that. Speak to that, please. Would a few big states rule over everyone else? And what about that? His concern about tyranny of the majority. Well, yeah, that tyranny of the majority is a, a very strange argument, in my opinion, if you think about it, because you know what Crenshaw's arguing is that there would be some it's it's substantial harm if the candidate who wins fifty three percent of the votes you know gets to govern. Um, even though other you know, 47% of the voters disagree. He, Crenshaw criticizes that sort of majority rule. But what he can never explain is why the alternative is better or more fair. I think most of us would say, well, it makes even less sense for the candidate who won less votes to then get to rule over the candidate, over the voters right. who supported the candidate who won the majority of votes. Um, so... Another point is it's just not a tyranny. You know, we're not talking about a pure democracy in which a majority is imposing their will on the minority. We're talking about an executive who's elected and checked by uh, two other branches of government. Yes. It's not as if Trump or Biden can unilaterally enact legislation and yeah. impose their will on anybody. Of course, there's the idea of proportional representation, but that's that's another issue down the road. And I see some positives of that as well. Actually, quite a few positives of proportional representation uh, might make it difficult to get things done. Why You say anyone who thinks the Electoral College will always work in their favor is playing with fire. Why do you say that? Well, I think there's a recency bias people have where just because the Electoral College has has benefited Republicans in 2000 and 2016, a lot of Republicans have gotten the idea that that's how it is and that's how it will always be. But there was a near miss in 2004 in which um, John Kerry nearly won the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. If you had just switched something like 60,000 votes in Ohio from Bush to Kerry, then indeed Kerry would have won while losing the popular vote. And in a sense, I think that in a sense that would have been good because if that had happened right after 2000, uh, I think Republicans and Democrats would have agreed, okay, this electoral college system is unfair Mm. and we need to work together to get rid of it and change it. But unfortunately, you know, that was a near miss. And so Republicans have grown in their support for the Electoral College, while Democrats have increasingly called to overturn it. But if it could happen in 2004, you know, it could happen again in 2024 or 28, anytime in the near future. Always something unexpected in politics. That I can guarantee. Which So <laughs> Colorado is a big uh, step forward. What states are the biggest challenges as of now to reaching the uh, uh, number that you need. What, what about the most significant, what are the most significant challenges of getting swing states on board? And after all, by being so important, don't they end up with more federal help? They do. But what are the, so how can you get more of these swing states on board with this? Wouldn't they stand to lose a little bit? Well, I think, to get more swing states on board, you really need to, you know, appeal to the the nonpartisan benefits of a national popular vote, of which there would be many. You know, for example, just considering this recent election and the way it played out, the attempts to delegitimize the outcome, the long 
or feel, seemingly long wait for the results, the threat of litigation, um, with a popular vote, it would create a more definitive outcome in a situation like this when Biden won so many more votes than Trump that we wouldn't have to deal with those problems. Um, so, you know, that's yeah, that one incentive. Cool. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah, in addition, you know, the, the national popular vote would ensure that all the voters in any state, even in their, if they're in the minority party, have equal influence to those in the majority party. Um, so in addition to being a safeguard against the candidate who you know, didn't win the popular vote winning the presidency, you give every voter in your state a greater incentive to cast their ballots, whether you're a Republican in New York or a Democrat in Oklahoma or Missouri. Hmm. It sounds uh, rather attractive, I will say. Again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about how to reinvigorate democracy. Our guest is David Edward Burke, who is uh, speaking about the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which you may not have heard of, dear listener, but it's rather interesting, and it's, uh, it's moving ahead slowly, as things tend to do in a republic, which is not a bad thing. Moving too quickly is, uh, you know, works well in dictatorships, but I'd prefer democracy, I must say. You write that it's much easier to stoke conspiracy theories of voter fraud and a stolen election when the margin is tens of thousands of votes in swing states than when the margin is millions of votes nationwide. Those reasons should be enough for legislators in swing states to put their country's interests ahead of their own. End of your quote. Uh, putting the country's interests ahead of their own, um, given that elected officials know that who elects them or not, uh, you know, that that's who they serve. Isn't perhaps that a bit naive? I don't know if I call it naive or optimistic, right. um, but as I said, there are a number of Republicans who have come out to support the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, including former members of the Bush administration. Um, as uh -huh. I said, we have seen some, some uh, legislative chambers in states like Oklahoma, Michigan, Minnesota, pass mm -hmm. the compact. So, you know, as uh, disheartening as politics can be, mm -hmm. there's still evidence that there are legislators who are willing to do what's best for the nation overall instead of maybe their state's interests or maybe even their own personal short-term interests as elected officials. Um, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, grassroots pressure makes a difference. Absolutely. If some of these legislators fear that they might not win the next election, if uh, they don't support the national popular vote interstate compact, they'll be a heck of a lot more likely to do so. So putting pressure on them through letters, calls, meetings can make an impact. And we'll be sure to uh, get that information out there before the end of the show. The Electoral College has been with us for a very long time. Uh, the, the problem has been there, most notably recently in 2016. What are the chances of the compact succeeding, becoming law before the 2024 elections? Well, as I said, I think it's the chances are better than most people think, and wow. it will really depend on how many states we get on board within the next, I'd say, you know, two years, the first half of the next presidential election cycle. Mm. As we get closer to the um, to the 2024 election, it's 
it's possible that you know legislators will tense up, people will mm-hmm. be more reluctant to maybe make a big change. However, we have seen the alternative in which the closer you get to passing a major reform, sometimes it makes states even more eager to get on board or be the one that pushes it across the finish line. Mm. The key is really, can we get you know a couple more states on board in 2021 and 2022, keep that momentum going, get more news coverage, as you said, because so many people haven't heard of this, even though it's over 70% of the way to success yet. Mm. Um, if we can kind of build some momentum early, then I think we have a good chance of succeeding by 2024. Sounds uh, sensible to me. And of course, there are always lawyers. <laughs> One question that would surely be raised is, does the compact require congressional approval and whether it even constitutes an interstate compact? How solid a constitutional base is there for the compact, do you think? Well, I'm, a, I'm an attorney myself. Based um, on what I've read, I think there's a solid basis because there is you know, broad discretion in the Constitution given to states for how they allocate their electoral votes. And you know, if states have the authority to do as they choose in this arena, there doesn't seem to be much reason they shouldn't be able to award all of their electoral votes to whichever candidate wins the national popular vote. Um, but we do live in a contentious polarized time and the compact would undoubtedly face legal challenges and of course liberal and conservative scholars uh, often disagree on what the outcome of those challenges should mm. be um, but as as i mentioned earlier in a recent case Trafalo versus washington um, the supreme court held that the state has authority to require electors to vote as they promise and so uh-huh. recent precedent gives us some hope that the court would indeed rule in favor of the compact when it crosses that 270 vote threshold. All right. Well, that sounds good. Of course, there's always, you know, lawyers get paid by the hour. So what the heck? Uh, my best friends are lawyers. And I used to work in a law factory, the state Senate. So in the U.S. Senate, that law factory, majority leader Charles Schumer, Senator Jeff Merkley, whom I like very much, and incoming Rules Committee Chairwoman Emmy Klobuchar said just recently that the first bill Senate Democrats will offer will be the For the People Act, which passed the House during the previous Congress but stalled in the GOP-controlled Senate. What do we know about that bill, the so-called For the People Act? What would that bill do? And if it passed, would that adversely affect the chances of the more broad uh, national uh, popular voter compact? The For the People Act, I think, is a bold statement by Democrats that they're prioritizing political reform. And it's one that I personally applaud because I'm one of those people who believes we need to solve the fundamental problems of making sure our government works effectively in order to solve you know, those other problems we care about. What it would do what the For the People Act would do um, is really enact reforms in a variety of areas, voting rights, campaign finance, um, some provisions aimed at at improving the integrity or reducing the ethical conflicts in the presidency and among presidential candidates. Um, So some specific provisions include automatic voter registration, Mm. making election day a national holiday, two weeks of early voting in every state, 
Um, and in the campaign finance piece, there's a, a matching funds provision for federal elections, a six to one match for donations up mm. to, I believe it's $200, um, as well as you know, uh, a way to try and get at dark money by requiring disclosure of super PAC donors who contribute more than $10,000. So it wouldn't get rid of the dark money, but it would make it more light and visible to mm. the rest of us. And it doesn't sound like, if I have it correctly, that it would in any way uh, negatively affect the chances of the uh, the act that we're talking about. No, it shouldn't affect the the compact's chances of success. You know, if anything, it should be viewed as sort of a, uh-huh. a complementary uh-huh. reform in the voting rights space. Nice. Well, what can people do to help this along? Should they desire to do so? Well, if you wanna if you wanna learn more about the compact and maybe answer some questions, um, you can always visit our website at citizenstakeaction.org. If you wanna get directly involved in the grassroots effort, um, you know, working to pressure legislators in some key states, uh, nationalpopularvote.com is a great place to to start and sign up and you know get connected with other volunteers and activists. Um, but the, the broader point, whether it's the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact or the For the People Act, is, you know, the, there are legislators who are already on board, and that's wonderful. Um, we need to thank them and keep them around. But for the ones who are on the fence, they need to hear from us. Yes. Um, whether it's the senators who are going to be voting on H.R. 1 or not H.R. 1, S.R. 1, maybe the For the People Act, or whether it's the legislators in Virginia who are considering the national popular vote this session, the more that they hear from constituents in favor, the more likely they are to support those um, provisions. So I'm guessing that if people go to that website, there are tools they can use to find out who the legislators are and you know what the status is in the various different states and that website again is yes you can go to nationalpopularvote.com for updated status on um, the bill in various states wonderful democracy works yes it does from time to time and uh it's always good to uh you know see what it is and correct the little problems make it always better i mean the whole idea is a a more perfect union, trying to create a more perfect union. We've been doing that for a long time. Very, very interesting and hopeful. David Edward Burke, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive and perhaps uh, increasing democracy at that. Thanks. Thank you for, for helping do your part to keep democracy alive. Really enjoy the show and glad to be a part of it. Thank you. a song I heard the other day Some words I heard this singer say Something in me love the way that it sounded when he said how he wanted to stand and and be counted I 
optimist from the early dawn Before all the fragments of my dreams are gone Things you don't know why your mind held on to Or else sometimes you know more than you want of the heart Knowing the millennium was just about to start 